northeast Nevada, clear into the Utah border, those basins are doing really well, even on the on the high elevation snow tail site. So so that's what I mean. I'm calling it. Those guys are gonna they're gonna reap what they're sowing right now, as long as we avoid a uh, uh, a really dry spring. You know, they're getting set up for kind of the perfect perfect winter here. Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Hey, Rock Sliders, Robbie Denning here. Late January, got one of my good buddies on the podcast here. Uh, Josh Boyd has been with Rock Slide since almost the beginning. Uh, he's he's one of our most active writers. Uh, if you haven't seen his reviews, uh, his most recent ones were the Seek Outside Sunlight tent and then tomorrow I, I guess it'll be a uh, a few days previous to the release of this episode that his Bergara 14 squared crest comes out uh that's a that's a rifle that he's been shooting the, the last couple of months so always a good guy to lean on for gear reviews he's done a ton of gear reviews if you go to our homepage and type in Josh Boyd it's pages of them so but besides that Josh actually has a real job too. He is a hydrologist for the U.S. Forest Service. We've had Josh on the podcast before. I always lean on him for all things related to winter, snowpack, snow water equivalent, how are the animals doing, all of that good stuff. Uh, Josh is based out of Northwest Montana, but he keeps an eye on the entire West for us. So I'm happy to have him back. You there, Josh? I am here, Robbie. Thanks okay. for having me on. Oh, Looking you bet, man! To the discussion, yeah. Always a pleasure, bud. Your your uh, episode last spring was was really popular, and for those of you just tuning in, uh, you can see that episode. It came out uh, last spring. Uh, kind of gives some of the definitions of the things that we're talking about today. We won't quite get uh, into the those today, just because we've already covered that before. We're going to go right into the heart of the beast, and we're going to be talking snowpack, snow water equivalent, snow tail, soil moisture, drought monitor, um, all those things that we look at as hunters to see uh, how's the winter shaping up. And uh, big game, they they live outside, and so they. Uh, it's been my experience that the biggest driver of our populations is not hunting pressure, is weather in in a lot of the states, not every single place but in a lot of the states you can uh, track big game population numbers specifically deer and elk by winter severity and to some extent summer severity drought so that's why we lean on josh and uh, so here we go josh so what's going on up there buddy oh man in this part of the world we've had a fairly mild winter at this point um the month of december was absolutely crazy in regards to the lack of snow that was falling in the mountains and in the valleys. We were setting um, all-time records for the lowest amount of snowpack ever recorded at a lot of our upper elevation sites. So, I mean, it was tracking below some of the more notorious ones, um, some of the more notorious dry seasons we've had. Like 2015 in this part of the world was very dry. 2005 was extremely dry. And there were there, in 2005, I remember hiking into manually survey some sites and they didn't have to put snowshoes on to get into these in like late February. It was wow. that dry. Um, 
this year we're trending lower than that um, all across Montana and the upper Columbia basins. It seems like. What is the upper Columbia basin? Um, So, yeah. So you were talking like um, Eastern Washington all the way into like the Clark Fork drainage of Montana, some of the stuff up into Canada, this, you know, I would classify that as the upper Columbia. Gotcha. Including North Idaho too. Yep. That's including North Idaho. So the Spokane River, Spokane River basin um, drains into the upper Columbia for the most part. Um, So yeah, that's, it's been incredibly dry. We did catch up a little bit uh, um, pulled out of those record low settings this just in the past two weeks, starting, you know, around the 10th of January, we started some severe cold weather and some snow that came along with it. That kind of pulled us up out of that a little bit, but we're still trending extremely low, maybe not setting record lows, but it's hovering right in that record low area. And I know the whole West was looking that way in the, in the month of December. Every place I looked in the news, the ski hills were closed. Uh, people were getting worried about reservoir levels. Like we're talking California, Oregon, down into uh, Wyoming and Colorado. And I think the only place that was doing okay in December was um, kind of central New Mexico. There were a couple basins there, like the... the uh, I don't know, what was it, the Rio Grande Basin around Albuquerque. I remember getting a pretty good shot of snow in December, and I think they're doing pretty good still to this day. All right. And so, you know, that's kind of kind of why I like to talk to guys like you, because, you know, you have, a, you have a big picture of what's going on. You know, I might know what's going on in the river basins around here a little bit. Um, but even this morning when I was researching this episode and I pulled up the snowpack maps, I was still, I was still surprised. Like I, I, I couldn't have predicted at all. And, um, you know, for example, in our Willow Creek drainage, uh, we're, we're actually ahead of schedule, uh, in there and, um, yet, you know, just move into some of the surrounding. And when I say ahead of schedule, I mean over a hundred percent year to date for snowpack, um, but move into some of the surrounding okay. basins. And it was a little bit more of kind of what I thought was, was that we would be low coming off of that dry November and dry December. Yes. Um, so it looks like the entire West is starting to catch up just in the past two weeks. I know, you know, looking at the stuff around the middle snake, you know, the stuff around Boise and then the upper snake, which is a near part of the world. You know, they're in that 95 to, you know, 88, 80% range. And you can track that all the way across as you head east, you know, into Wyoming. They're in the into the upper 80s for the most part for snow water equivalent. And just a reminder, snow water equivalent is just the amount of water content measured in the snowpack. So if you melted the snow, we measure it in inches of water. So, you know, I always say SWE, S-W-E. Sometimes I'll use, you know, snow water equivalent, but when we're talking percent of normal or percent of median snow water equivalent, we're measuring, we're talking just the, what's in the snowpack. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you clarify on that. And for, you know, those of you that may not have caught that first episode we did last year, uh, Josh is not just a pencil pusher. You heard him mention snowshoes or lack thereof. He's in the field. And and the, I know part of your job, Josh, is actually physically going to these, 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 uh, these sites. Now the snowtail sites are automated, right? Yes, they are. They're automated and they give you pretty much hourly data throughout the season but they still need to be um, quality checked 
and calibrated. So there are times when we go to those sites and do a physical measurement just to make sure that the, the instrument and the snow pillow is reading things correctly. So that, that's what you're doing is, is, is making sure you're getting quality data. Are, are you, are you operating any manual sites still? Are you manually measuring the snow anywhere? Yes. So yeah, we do measure, um, manual sites and those are, give us a a more holistic look at what's actually occurring across the whole suite of elevations. Um, a lot of these snow tail sites are just high or they're, they're more geared towards high elevation snowpack. Um, they don't really give you a good idea what's happening at the lower elevations. So these manual snow measurements and there's, these are called snow courses. They're where we actually go out and take manual measurements with the snow tubes, weigh, weigh them and calculate the inches of water in the snowpack and then report that. So we'll, we'll typically have a, a low site, a medium elevation site, and then a high elevation site to give you that whole range of variability across the, 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 uh, the altitude of the mountain range that we're kind of looking at. And that's what we were talking about last year. And a thread just popped up yesterday on Rockslider Day before um, uh, Mike Moore, one of our other writers, put it up. He lives in Montana. Can't remember exactly where. And he was talking about just how low the snowpack is. I mean, I see some of these basins on this map that are in the 40s uh, percent uh, snow water equivalent. That's low. And especially for, you know, we're not late in the season, but, you know, we should, you know, it's going to be hard to make that up the way I understand it. Um, because um, for our listeners, snow water equivalent, uh, is is to to date. So, um, if you have a hundred percent of snow water equivalent on November fifteenth, but you have a hundred percent of snow water equivalent on December fifteenth, that's two totally different amounts of inches of water. Is that, isn't that correct, Josh? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. Typically, and so, the the snowpack will build throughout the season, and there'll be a a point in the calendar where it'll reach its peak. Um, and then it'll start to melt out. Not saying it it won't build beyond that, but it just has a harder time building. Yeah, every day. That's what I've learned about these. Every day that goes by is a day, a day you've lost to make up snowpack if you're behind, if you're significantly behind. It could still do it. We've had some extremely wet uh, Februarys and Marches and, and, and seen that snowpack, you know, you know, come out of these deficits. Um, and then we had like last year where there were, weren't very many deficits, at least in my part of the country, but it still kept going into April. It still kept building. I remember when you and I were doing that episode, we were looking at some of these sites and they were like hundreds and hundreds of percent above average, if I remember right. But um, but for the listeners, snow water equivalent, that's that's measured by the day. And, and so that's what we're talking about. And so I've got the map up right here, Josh. And just to give everybody a, a visual, um, you, you, you said uh, the, the upper Columbia Basin. So I'm looking at Northwest Montana, I guess kind of that Livingston country, maybe north of Whitefish up in there. I see those basins are in the 70% range. And then moving over into uh, northern Idaho, just up in the very panhandle, 68%. You mentioned eastern Washington, 70%, 65%, just to give give people um, uh, an idea of what we're looking at. But when I move over, I don't know the name of the basin or if you even have this map in front of us, but just uh, east of you is one basin that's at 42%. And I don't know my Montana geography yeah. very well, but you know, that upper Missouri or something. Yeah, that would be the Marias River Basin. So that's on the, yeah, that's on the east side of the divide, and it has been lagging 
in snow and just precip overall. So that's another thing we should probably talk about that, you know, snow comes in the form of rain and it also comes in the form of snow in the Rocky mountains, you know, a good three quarters of our precip comes in the form of snow. It, it kind of like hangs on and feeds the streams late in the season. It's sort of like a, a bank account where it's saved up, saved up, and then slowly trickled out over time. Um, but you get out on like the coast of, of the Western United States, like, uh, the coastal range in Oregon, some of the, the, uh, the stuff out on the Olympic peninsula, they get some snow, but a lot of that just comes in the form of rain. And, um, we tally the total precip as well. Uh, when we're looking at the water budget for the work that I do. So, um, you know, that, and having some good fall rain that kind of helps bring the precip levels up a little bit. It soaks into the soil. It helps kind of fill the aquifer early in the water year. So the water year starts for us October 1. And that's typically when we start the clock over. Gotcha. And that's, and so on the, so on the, we, if we start early in the year of water year getting, let me, yeah, I was just going to say, just when we start getting a bunch of precip early on, we saturate those soil moistures, then the snowpack comes. And then when the snow starts to melt, the soils are still kind of saturated. So it doesn't soak in right away. It just sort of comes out at a, at a more slower trickle than it would if it just got sucked right into this dry moisture or this dry soil doesn't have any moisture. So is soil moisture considered in any of these percentages? No. I mean, you could look at soil moisture. So some of the snow tail sites have soil moisture meters mm -hmm. installed at the site. And I don't know exactly the depths that they have their sensors installed. And the the network isn't that robust. I know the NRCS is looking at um, equipping a lot more sites with soil moisture meters, but you can find that on that, on that IMAP that the NRCS has all their data kind of linked on. Yeah, that's the interactive map. Yep. You can turn that, those sensors on and off and get an idea of where the soil moistures are like as a percent of median or a percent of average. Okay. And for those of you that really want to geek out on it, this is nrcs.usda.gov. Just get on there, type in keywords like snowtell, um, it should get you to the right place. It's a huge website. In fact, it took me a little while to to navigate around on there today when I was researching this episode. But you can you can really geek out on that. But no bigger geek out on it than Josh Boyd. That's who we've got here today on the Rockcast. And uh, so so so, Josh on the on the snowtail. And we we were discussing this yesterday on Rockslide on that thread too. The snowtail is only part of the picture because of what you said. It's typically high elevation stuff. You know, look, looking ahead way into the water year, how much water is going to be in the reservoirs? What are stream flows going to be like? That doesn't necessarily uh, predict exactly what it may be at the at the elevations that most big game winter at. Correct? Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's correct. I mean, it'll give you an idea, like if there's a if the snow packet, your upper elevation is at, is at 150%, you get a pretty good idea that the low elevation stuff is going to be generally high as well. So it gives you a good reference point, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly what's happening. You know, occasionally you'll have a storm that'll come in that's really warm, but 
and it'll deposit a lot of snow at high elevations, but say in the valleys, it'll kind of be warm enough that it comes in the form of rain. So you don't get that build up of snowpack. But for the most part, you get a good idea of what exactly is, or what's just a general idea of what's happening out there in the mountains. But yeah, you're right. These are not set up in most areas of winter range. Gotcha. And so that's kind of how I've always used them. It's a correlation. And so if I'm seeing, you know, 150%, like like Josh said, some years I've seen 200%, those almost always predict high high winter kill, at least for deer. Um, but then you get the pattern that we're in right now. So it's, it's January 24th right now on, on recording day. And uh, we've got, we've kind of lost our Arctic influence of the jet stream. And now it's all Pacific influence. Everything's coming in kind of zonal right off of the Pacific into the, into the West, at least the Northern Western States. And, uh, and, and that brings with it warm air, but it's usually pretty moist too. And these have always been the best storms for our animals in, in my part of the world, because it, it you got to get pretty high. 7,000 feet or so before you start getting accumulating snows and everything below that is rain. And that's how it's been the last couple of days. And it, it it's really helped our snowpack. Uh, just listening to the guys that are, that are on the radio and the, you know, the, your regular weatherman talks about this stuff a little bit, if you really pay attention. Now I had, you know, I didn't get on the snow tail sites, you know, 10 days ago and look at it, but our high elevation stuff's doing pretty good right now. But when the low elevation is getting rain or light moisture, to me, that's always the perfect setup. And, you know, and then we have a winter like last year where that never happened. It was snow from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain from the middle of November to the middle of March. And, and we, we paid dearly for it, especially for deer. Um, so I don't know if it's that way up where you're at. I know you don't have as high elevations as we do in some of those places up there, but what, what kind of weather patterns are you looking for when you're thinking, Hey man, our deer and elk are going to do good this winter. Oh, you know, I think our, our deer and elk do really well up here when, winter comes in a little later than normal it gives those animals a little bit of time to transition out of the high elevation stuff down to their winter range they don't get stuck mm -hmm. up there in some nasty bowl and they have to fight their way out mm -hmm. which usually they'll make it out but you know it adds a little bit more stress on their bodies especially at a time when they're still trying to put weight on for the winter you know they're coming out of that that rut and they're stressed out and they need to put weight on and if they have to fight deep snowpack to get to their winter range. And then once they get to their winter range, it's full of snow. It's just harder on them. So if we can get a delayed winter and then, you know, a, a decent amount of snow um, that, like you said, comes in a little warmer, comes in with some more moisture. It typically helps a little bit as long as we don't get a lot of like deeper snow with a heavy, heavy crust on it. I mean, that seems to right. really put a hurt on our animals when we get a heavy crust because it's hard for them to move around in, hard for them to get through that stuff and, and just move around and they just burn a lot of energy. Yeah. The coyotes and the wolves love it, but, but I'm glad you said that too, because you're right. You know, if we've got uh, a, a decent snowpack and then we get rain on snow and then right back to Arctic influence, you know, we're getting sub-freezing temperatures as high as it, it is really hard on them. Um, but so far I have not seen that yet this year and I'm, I'm a little bit giddy. I mean, uh, you know, anything can happen. I remember in 2018, the winter was 
not a lot different than it is now. It wasn't as dry in the fall, but we didn't have anything major going on. And then it started about now and it didn't really affect our adult population of deer around here, but it really got into our fawns. Um, you know, it was kind of a four week event that made up for the rest of the winter. And, and there was some of that involved too, you know, it was more snowpack, um, crust on the snow. It, it just gets hard on them. So we're not, we're not out of the, the, danger zone yet but um i just saw one of my deer hunting friends on my way over here he was giving me a big thumbs up because you know we're all walking around here with our with our butts on a plate after what happened last year you know any good news around here we're so happy because you know last year was just like everyday death you know here comes the next storm <laughs> I, I remember like 32 below zero at the end of january probably about these dates a year ago i mean it was just tough and so uh, a lot of the, a lot of the biologists i've talked to and some of the old timers you know they say, man, if you can get, you can keep winter at kind of 90 days or less, your deer and elk are going to do pretty good. They've got usually enough fat stores as long as it wasn't a super dry summer of the, the year before. And we're going to talk about that too. Um, you know, that they, 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 they can handle that. And that's, I mean, that's not a very scientific way to look at it, but it's been kind of predictive of what I've seen. Cause last year, you know, mid November to mid March and even later, I and mean, we had late spring storms last year, mm -hmm. you know, accumulating snows clear into, I shouldn't even say mid March. I think it was late March. We were getting accumulating snows into early April. And, uh, you know, so those, those deer were 120 days plus, and, and they were hurting, they were really, really hurting. And so on a year like this, you know, I, I, I get kind of excited, but Back to that whole soil moisture thing that you were talking about, you know, we're, we're talking kind of, kind of about winter and for, for years, that's, you know, that's was what we talked about quality of winter range, you know, things like that getting deer through the winter, but there's just been more and more data come out over the years that, you know, summer precipitation, uh, is, is as big of a predictor or highly correlated with, you know, over year survival as well. And so you were talking about the soil moisture. And, uh, I, down here last summer, we only had about two or three dry weeks, uh, maybe 10th of July through the end of July. And then, you know, we didn't have a heavy monsoon, but we had consistent rain coming in. And I mean, it's, it was, the sagebrush was green. It, it, you don't see green sagebrush late in the summer. Heck, sometimes you don't even see it late in the early in the spring, and uh, and so I know we we at least around here we we should have had good soil moistures lending itself to what you said. You know, if the fall snows, the late fall snows, early winter snows can not just be falling on dry ground that's like a sponge. That that kind of gives us a boost as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you go to that NRCS map, and I think by default, at least on my browser, the snow water equivalent button is, is checked. And so mm -hmm. it'll show, it'll show me the drainages and where they are at this moment in time for snow water equivalent, you know, based on the, the, the percent median. Um, but if you go down and click on the precip button. Mm -hmm. Going back, I think it'll I highlight those same drainages, and they should all change color. And if you, yeah, if, if you turn that on, um, it will show you where you're sitting at that current 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 date and time for total precip for the water year. So starting October one till now, and if you start looking at a lot of the basins, they went from yellow to green, and a lot of the browns went from you know brown to yellow, meaning that's it, they're gaining more 
more water. So like the middle snake, upper snake, snake headwaters, the bighorn, upper green, they're all in that 90% range for precip. Even though we're lower on snowpack from the last, you know, because some of those drainages you just named, other than the Willow Creek drainage and maybe the Bear River, uh, you know, they're 77 to 80%. You know, Upper Green River looks like, I think that's Upper Green River, 77%. You know, they're pretty low on snowpack, but they're higher than that on overall water. And that's really what's, I, I, I mean, it all counts, but, you know, we've got more water out there than what we see on this snowtail map. Yeah, so that mean that just means that uh, precipitation came in the form of rain, which means it's soaking into your soils, which means it's going to drive your soil moisture levels further out. It's going to delay the drying of your soils further out in in time. Well, in the words of Luke Bryan, rain is a good thing, and so we love we love fall rains. That kind of sets us up for 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 good soil moisture, like what Josh is explaining. Uh, we get the best use out of our snowpack, and then going into the next year, because you know no year is separate from the previous year. You know you're 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 not not really ever starting fresh. There's always some carryover on you know what were soil moistures the year before, what was the drought like the year before. You know it takes takes some time to recover this stuff, and uh, and so uh, around here. I know it got drier the, the further north we went last summer, but around here we were we were in good shape all through the summer, and and now so far having a light winter, you know I'm I'm looking at the Intermountain West and if, and if I had to call it I would say these animals are going to be doing pretty good coming into the spring, you know notwithstanding you know big bigger heavier storms I know that the ten day forecast has got a lot more colder temperatures coming in, but that's pretty normal for February, but you know if this if this continues and then we don't get into a really dry spring because we can talk about that too Josh you can come off a of, mm-hmm. you know good snowpack good soil moisture. And then just roll right into a drought with just a few months of of dry weather in the spring when you should be getting rain. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, it. Yeah. Th- that's what will keep you out of drought. Is those the the moisture levels or the rainfall, the precip that you get after the snowpack melts. And that's really another thing. Um, everybody talks snowpack and fire. Snowpack fire. There um, have been multiple studies done on this um, where. A severe fire season is not correlated with a uh, a low snowpack year. They're, they seem to be completely separate. What really drives them, at least in the northern Rockies and central Rockies, is how much precipitation comes in your normal seasonal time frame. I know like up here in the northern Rockies, uh, we get a lot of moisture, a lot of rain that falls in the month of June. June and if we, we if we get that the tapers into July our fire season is going to be normal but if we have a dry June with hardly any moisture August and September are going to be smoky you can count on it it doesn't have anything to do with our snowpack at least in this part of the world isn't that amazing and the, like this is this is why I like to talk about this stuff because that's not what we used to think you know, it was all snowpack. And now, you know, the second time I've heard it in a couple of days, it was on that thread on Rockside too, about, well, not unnecessarily, because, you know, you can have a lot of snowpack, but if it, if you get an early dry spring and that snowpack, you know, melts off early, you still have so many days of drying when that sun's at such a high angle, you know, after the spring equinox into the, into the summer equinox, that sun, it's just, it's just so powerful. It can just dry out so much stuff. And uh, there was a meteorologist around here. I kind of became friends with and, and he, and he, he, he said something was interesting too. He says, you know, dry weather's dry weather that hurts you too. But he says that, um, even not getting the cloudy weather, 
hurts you because those are day when when you, at least you've got clouds and stuff moving through. Th- that's one less day of drying out, and that stuff all kind of adds together. You know, like okay, we didn't get a lot of rain. We had more cloudy days. We didn't get as much drying. Um, but if you didn't have a lot of cloudy days, compound that with you know not a lot of rain or even some rain, but just more days to dry out. And I remember, I think I'm quoting him right. He was you know he was saying that on, on a real dry day high winds, we can lose a quarter inch of soil, of soil moisture. Does that sound right to you, Josh? I mean, this is like 20 years ago. He told me this, but like, I, I thought like a quarter inch. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I, I'd have to take his word for it. I do know things get when, when the sun comes out and the wind blows and your RHs drop fire behavior goes to the roof. I could, I mean, I could see it having a major effect. Yeah. The Onyx Hunt Elite subscription will provide way more value than the $100 annual fee will cost you. And that's before you apply the 20% Rockcast promo code. You'll use Onyx on every hunt, every planning session, and now save money with exclusive deals on gear from the industry's best. Onyx Elite also includes application and draw odds tools, educational resources for all species, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage, and now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite is trusted by millions. Onyx has also released new features to help make hunters more successful. Already known for nationwide public and private land ownership and being a fully functional GPS without service, Onyx Hunt has just released new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back and imagery on demand. On top of that, Onyx is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates Onyx has for this hunting season. So try Onyx Hunt for free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code ROCKCAST for 20% off your new Onyx Hunt membership. Yeah, and that was kind of his point too, is that, you know, there's, it's always this combination of factors that affect things. And this doesn't just apply to the weather. It's kind of like everything, you know, it's always these little perfect storms. And so, so, you know, we don't want to, if we, we could have, you know, good light winter roll into a dry spring and then still, still have problems. And now a long time ago, before I ever used to pay, pay attention to stuff, I was happy when it wasn't raining in the spring. You know, I don't live, really live where antler quality is affected that much, you know, unless you're just hunting low elevation deer all the time where it's affected that much by, by a dry spring. You know, I know, you know, my, my hunting buddies to the South of us. Yeah. It's a lot bigger deal when you get into the Southwestern States, but I always liked the dry springs. But then as I understood this stuff more there, it was like, yeah, it's temporarily bumping up your deer population. Cause you had a better carryover, but now you've got deer going into the summer that are not as healthy, you know, skinnier, don't have as much fat. And you know, that this is, this is why I like talked about this stuff. Cause I, you know, we didn't used to think about that. It was all about winter, winter range. You know, as long as they got quality winter range, well, if they're going into their skinny, we, you know, we've seen these, these fondo ratios really drop in, in, in the winter. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a severe winter if they're not in good shape. And so, so all of that kind of leading into the soil moistures, Josh, the, what I look at a lot of time for soil moisture, and I, I don't even know if this is the way to explain it, but I really pay attention to the drought monitor. Now it doesn't just take in soil moisture, but total amount of precept fallen and all that kind of stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I don't know a whole lot what they use to predict and, mm-hmm. di- you know, diagnose 
what is drought, but I do believe it's it's just a, a, the lack of precip that's fallen over a period of time is kind of a big driver of their their uh, their analysis. Gotcha. And for anybody, any of our listeners, I would encourage you to start studying the drought monitor and, you know, study it over time. Uh, it's just, just, just type in drought. I mean, usually when I type the word in drought in Google, that's the first thing that comes up, but drought monitor, um, and, uh, it's released, uh, every Thursday. So, uh, I'm looking at the January 18th map and, um, it's, it's, it, it's something I think that correlates over time with, uh, herd health and things like that. So right now, Josh, looking at you all, I'm colorblind. So these colors kind of mess with me, but you guys are in moderate D1 drought up, up where you're at in those basins. And then right along the Idaho, Montana border, kind of that bitter country all the way up into the Selkirks, it looks like, um, that color again, this D2, that's, that's considered yep. severe drought. Yep. Yeah. So we and it looks like it's going to persist looking at the the drought outlook and then also the climate predictive services from the weather mm -hmm. service i mean it looks like we're going to see you know above average temperatures or above average above average chances of higher temperatures <laughs> below precip yeah so, so it's the later warmer we and drier warmer and drier exactly especially along there and you know uh, you know and now i would always think of that as hey those animals will probably do fine in the short term because of the lighter winter, but in the long term, you know, there's no free lunch. <laughs> They're good. Yeah. Less oh, body fat. Way of putting it. Yeah. And, and the other thing too is, is if they've got less body fat, it's because the habitat's not in good shape. The habitat is suffering. The browse and, you know, everything that they live on is, isn't doing as well. And you know, I remember back in the, I think it was the early 2000s, you know, when I was getting a lot of Wyoming tags, you know, I've. I thought Wyoming was doing fine, but every time I would talk to a habitat biologist, they were like, oh no, our bitter brush is terrible. Our sagebrush is having all these problems. I don't remember the words they used, you know, but they just weren't, they just weren't doing really well. And I'm like, really? Why? I mean, they were like, well, God, look at our rain patterns. And I'm like, oh, it rained the other day. And they're like, well, that's a lot more to do with it. Rain the other day. That's kind of why I want to bring all this stuff together. You get this carryover from year after year after year. And when you look at the drought monitor, you know, if that, if that, you know, if that severe drought is persisting in that area over a couple of years, someone's got to pay the piper. You know, it's, it's, it's going to catch up. And, and, and when you look at the drought monitor, everybody, you'll see these, they've, they've got um, S and L and then S and then L. S and L means short and long-term impacts. S means short-term impacts. L means long-term impacts. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about is, you know, I'm kind of celebrating a lighter winter right now, but we don't, we don't want to get too much of a light winter or we go into these, these long-term impacts. And that's where the habitat degradation, uh, de uh, degradation takes over. Don't even think I'm saying the right word there, but you know, that's, that's why this stuff matters over the long-term. Um, and so, so Josh with, you know, kind of moving into the spring, I've seen us, I've seen us come off of, you know, pretty, you know, really dry winters, even like what you guys are having and then get, you know, really good rain in, in, you know, April and May and even into June. And it's almost like dodging a bullet. You know, it's, it's, it's just like it, it, everything quiets down that the, the habitat can handle it. You might see your, um, in the drop monitor, the, I think these are, these are rated in categories. Tell me if that's wrong, uh, Josh, uh, if you know, but like you have a category of severe drought, 
or category of moderate drought. Like I've seen just, just a rainy spring move those categories back, you know, one or two, you know, so maybe drop from extreme drought to moderate drought, you know, skip a whole category. Um, and, uh, and, and timely rains are, are kind of everything, you know, like you can, you can, you can have that in the spring and make up for winter snowpack and our, our, our guys that are in the Southwest, that's what, where I really understand that it really makes a difference for those guys when they get those, they can handle the dry winter. They can get those timely rains in the, in the spring, um, that, that, that can, like I said, almost be like dodging a bullet. What, what do you think about all that? Uh, yes, uh, exactly. Um, we rely on those seasonal moisture patterns to, to keep us out of drought. And when they don't show up, it really, really puts a damper on our, our forb growth and our brows, you know, our grasses in our seasonal forbs. Um, Southwest, I know they rely on those monsoon rains to come mm-hmm. in. Right. Yeah. Late rains. June, early July. And I know even in like Colorado and Utah, they get those, those, uh, afternoon monsoon dumps into August or yeah, August in September. And that really, it puts a damper on their fire season, but it also helps kind of carry that, that food over into the fall. And, um, while those animals are trying to put on fat and try to, you know, become in the best shape that they can possibly be in. And then, you know, you want that, that food source to be in the best shape. Yeah. And, um, nutrition levels and protein content. Yeah. And we're, we've got, I, I don't have the data, so I don't want to speak too much into it, but I've just been kind of hearing it on the, on the ground level here from some of the biologists, um, that we've got a few places where we've got record fat levels on deer, um, coming off of, you know, a really, really hard winter. And it was related to what you just said is we had these, you know, good, good, good soil moisture in the spring from the hard winter, obviously, then not a lot of drying time in the summer. Uh, you know, a short dry season. And then we I didn't hear anybody say we had a strong monsoon last year, but in a lot of places, at least we got it. You know, we got the cloud cover. Like I was talking about my meteorologist friend saying, hey, we didn't get the drying that they usually get on those bright sunny days. And then, um, uh, you know, obviously moisture coming in. And then in some of these basins, especially it kind of seemed like central Wyoming to Western Wyoming. Some of my friends that lived there, they're like, man, it's raining every day, like almost every day. And now we're getting reports out of some of those areas about just how fat those deer are. And, uh, you know, so that was like consistent moisture, even though they came off of a hard winter, they were able to make up some of that loss in, in, in body weight, um, just with that consistent moisture pattern coming in. And, uh, like, like Josh said, even though we're kind of low on snowpack in some of those basins right now, the total, uh, the total amount of, I can't remember how I said it, but when we looked at those basins, oh, the precept level, the precept yeah. that was still up in the 90% range. Yeah. Yeah. Precepts looking good, um, across the West, but, you know, looking at the drought outlook that you're talking about that, you know, you can, it, it shows where it's, they're predicting it to either maintain, persist, or, uh, maybe even go away. Um, but it, you know, it looks like the Southwest of, you know, around the four corners area, it's supposed to persist pretty similar to what we have right now, New Mexico, Arizona, most of the States in a, like a persistent drought. And then it looks like, you know, Western Montana and Northern Idaho, it's going to persist and then expand 
outward from there, you know, up into the that little corner of Oregon. And then even it's going to cross over the divide and get kind of, there's a strip in central Montana where it's going to develop as well. So, you know, a lot of places it's kind of going away, but um, in the, like, if you drew a line through the middle of the West, mm-hmm. you know, Northern California, all the way over to, you know, Wyoming, it's looks like the drought is gone. Um, that's what I've noticed. Yeah. So you guys are sitting good, but other parts of the West is, you know, it's patchy, which is, you know, to be expected. Yeah. We're kind of right on the dividing line. When I say we, I'm talking about, you know, kind of South Central Idaho is kind of right on the dividing line. And and what I'm noticing from this drought monitor, Josh, is how much white is on there actually. And and for anybody that hasn't played with the, the drought monitor, it's got some time-lapse options where you can go back, oh my gosh, like decades. It, it's really cool. And you can play this time-lapse and see this drought expand and shrink. And uh, there's a lot of white right now and kind of a lot And white, by the way, is no drought. Um, and uh, like to see California with hardly, with no color, I mean, just a little bit in the very Northern part of California, everything else is white. I mean, how many times do you see California out of the drought, Josh? <laughs> I know it's rare. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then that extends clear over into Nevada and, um, uh, Western Utah, you know, there's some, there's some, a lot of dry, dry units over in there. Those guys are going to be doing pretty good, you know, short again, as long as you don't get a really dry spring, you know, they're, they're set up for success there. I mean, I'm, I'm just calling it saying, man, they're going to have, you know, better fawn to doe ratios, going to have better body weights. We know what that does for antlers. Um, and, and this is just great because that's where some of our most severe persistent drought has been is kind of along that Utah, Nevada line you know, over the last, I don't know, recent memory anyways, but it, it seems like they're always dying for water. I don't know what you think. Yeah, no, if, if they, if the predictive services are correct on these outlooks, um, yeah, Nevada and Utah, good chunk of Colorado are going to be do, doing okay. Yeah. Here. So that's yeah. good news. You pursue them, you cherish them, and now it's time to protect them. This is the Mule Deer Foundation. Our mission is the conservation of mule deer, black-tailed deer, and their habitats, the heart and soul of the West. Join the herd today and help us preserve the legacy of these majestic creatures for generations to come. Your membership supports essential conservation projects, research initiatives, and educational programs that secure a future for mule deer and black-tailed deer. Our deer our heritage, our responsibility. Don't just witness their journey, be a part of it. Join the herd. Together, we can make a difference. Visit muledeer.org today. Yeah, that is good news. Good news. Finally, we need some good news, man. Everything else we've been putting up with. So uh, let's see. And so we we talked about weather patterns, Josh. I don't know um, how much you pay attention to the the whole uh, Southern Oscillation, the El Nino, La Nina cycles. Do you you pay much attention to that in your job? Or is that just kind of like me, you know, at night you hear the weatherman talking about, hey, what's that all about? Yeah, you know, I do pay attention to it. And, you know, it, of course, when they predict, when they, when they announce that it's occurring, you know, they, they don't really have a good sense of how strong it's going to be. And, but, you know, they seem to have a, a, a decent, I mean, as the season progresses, they have a better idea of what we're, what we have in store. I mean, they predicted what we're seeing here in the Northwest 
pretty much spot on. I remember seeing these predictions back in early October, and it it pretty much played out exactly the way they predicted. They didn't predict that forty below, you know, stuff that blew down out of Canada, but that was just a small, you know, six, seven, eight day isolated event. Overall, they from November to now, it's been pretty dang warm, pretty dang dry, which is what they predicted up here based upon that oscillation that they were seeing in the the ocean temps. So I do pay attention to it. I just take it with a grain of salt until I start seeing results in the landscape. And then, and then I, I start to look at their seasonal, you know, outlook, you know, like one month ahead, three months ahead to see what, if that's going to persist or if it's going to break down at some point. And it seems like, you know, this year they had it spot on. And so I'm going to take their, their, their outlook, you know, a little more seriously. And I think we're probably going to see some drier, warmer weather up here in the Pacific Northwest and you guys down there in Southern Idaho, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, it's going to be pretty dang normal. And for people that haven't paid that close attention to it is, you know, the, 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 the El Nino, I think that means the child. And the reason it's called that is because you typically see the, the warming waters around the equator, uh, reach their, 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 highest temperatures right around Christmas. So Christmas, baby Jesus, La Ni- La, uh, El Nino, that, that's how that all came to be because it usually peaks around Christmas. But we start seeing it coming, you know, late summer and and and, and they were all predicting because sometimes I think the, the weather, uh, you know, like Weather Channel and all those guys, they play on our fears a little bit, you know, or they know we're susceptible to clickbait. And uh, they start talking about the super El Nino, you know, like we're having extremely warm waters around the equator. That's going to, and the way it affects the, the Western U.S. is it changes the jet stream um, on, on how the weather's coming in. And uh, and so they were predicting that. But some of the more reliable guys that I listened to, um, the meteorologist guys that aren't looking for the clicks, were like, nah, we're, we'll, we'll wait and see if this turns into a super El Nino. And, and it didn't. I think the last super El Nino we had was in 2015. And our weather patterns were kind of wonky then, too. Um, but but it seems like they've kind of, like you said, they kind of called it this year. And, and what you typically see in an El Nino um, is – a drier Pacific Northwest or interior West, kind of where Josh is. Um, and, and it's because the jet stream, the way I understand it, it either splits or it gets suppressed on an average, not every day, not every storm, but on average, it gets suppressed into the Southwestern states. And so those, those Southwestern states, you know, California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, they can do pretty good on El Nino's. And that seems to be what's at least in the, the forecast that's coming the next couple of weeks. That seems to be what's happening. You know, we're mild up here. Um, they're mild in temperatures down there, but uh, just this morning, I heard it. Pineapple Express. What's the other word for Pineapple Express? They call that, Josh. Um, Ooh, Pacific, uh, the uh, Atmospheric River. Atmospheric River. I heard it this morning. Talking about an atmospheric river, and that's typically where our southwestern states do really good. If we get an atmospheric river coming in and we've got an El Nino, um, that's where you know these, these southwestern states do pretty good. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to determine the season, but so far, I'm with you, Josh. It's, it's kind of like classic El Nino. You know, it seems to be what's what's shaping yeah, up. And I would say it's yeah, they they hit it spot on. I mean, just I watched the news yesterday of some pretty severe flooding in San Diego. Yes. They're getting pounded. So yeah, 
Typically yeah. El Nino, you're going to see, you know, wetter and slightly colder stuff in the Southwest part of the country. So, and they're getting, they're getting it. And you can see it in the snowpack too. You'll see it, um, you know, on the snowpack map or even just the precip map, you know, down there, in New Mexico, they're, they're all looking at a hundred percent, you know, or close to it. Um, well, that's you know, great. Yeah. That's on the precip map. Yeah, I do believe. Yeah. Yeah, hold on. Yeah, I guess. Well, yeah, there's some of that stuff in northern Arizona is still kind of, it's still lacking. But if you look in like central Nevada, the precip is 115, 120% of normal. So they're doing pretty well. Yeah, that then that's really good for that country. That's just like a light switch coming on for those animals down there because they're so dry typically. And, and I'm still on the snowtails map in central Nevada, kind of east, uh, moving east. All the snowtails is... 100% now. There's one basin that's 98%, but, uh, you know, Elko County, all that kind of stuff up in there. Uh, I think White Pine's up there, uh, 130%, 140%. I might not have my counties exactly right, but no northeast Nevada, clear into the Utah board, those basins are doing really well, even on the on the high elevation snowtail site. So, so that's what I mean. I'm calling it. Those guys are going to they're going to reap what they're sowing right now, as long as we avoid a, uh, a a really dry spring. You know, they're getting set up for kind of the perfect, perfect winter here. But if this, um, there's already already some signs of the uh, El Nino weakening. Uh, one of the meteorologists I was listening this morning when I was researching this was saying, you know, there's a few signs out there that that's why we know it's not going to be a super El Nino. We're seeing these waters cool around the equator, and 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 then sometimes you go right back in. You swing the other way, you got your neutral weather pattern, but then you swing the other way, the La Nina pattern. Now, I don't understand that pattern as well as I do the El Nino pattern. Do you, Josh? Yeah, it seems, to be, it seems to be about the opposite of what we're seeing right now. I mean, typically we get colder, wetter um, surges through the Pacific Northwest into the Northern Rockies and, you know, Southern California through Arizona, Nevada. Uh, New Mexico, they typically are a little drier. So in a nutshell for people, you can say, opposite. oh, I'm sorry. Now, as I say, it's, it's just the opposite of El Nino. So in a nutshell, we can say El Nino, uh, Southern jet stream activity, you know, Southwestern states for us hunters, uh, La Nina, Northern jet stream activity, you know, interior Pacific Northwest, um, into Montana, all that, that's typically where, where the weather is going to be. Um, and then you got all this country in between El Nino and La Nina. I don't know if they call that normal or whatever they call it, where, where, you know, you're not really in a pattern, but, uh, but I, I just know that weather prediction's getting better because, you know, I first started pay, paying attention to El Nino, you know, back in the, I don't know, late eighties, something like that, you know, and, it was, they weren't predicting it as close as they are now. You know, it just seems like they're get, getting a better handle on, on, on what it's doing and, and not on any individual storm. You know, a lot of guys are like, well, man, they blew that one, but that's not really what those patterns are about. It's about a overall pattern. It's not about any individual, certain individual storm, or like you said, we got 40 below for seven days. It, that doesn't throw the model out the window. Um, but you know, the overall, if you stand back and look at the, the El Nino, basically when it really started to affect us in, in, uh, you know, November, December, sure enough, dry in the Northwest. And, um, you know, we're finally getting some moisture now, but it's still more about the Southern jet stream. Yes. Yeah. And I, you know, I would say 
just because they're predicting warmer and drier doesn't mean we're not going to have, like you said, we're not going to have small events that come through and build our snowpack that typically always will. I mean, you guys are sitting in the middle of everything kind of halfway between, you know, this warm, drier air in the north and the wetter, cooler air in the south. So you could get either one. And, you know, looking at your snowpack, say in the upper snake, you're right on track for like 2019. I mean, if, if things kind of play out the way, you know, we think they will. So there's hope you're going to hit a normal snowpack, but still probably be fairly, you know, a little more drier in the valley bottoms, which is good. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. Because that's kind of what, like, like that deer hunter, I told you, I talked to just before I came over. I mean, yeah, we got pretty good snow at ski resorts right now. We've had some storms coming in. It's not fantastic, but it's good. But, you know, at the winter range level, uh, he was out yesterday and he's like, oh my gosh, he says, there's just almost no snow on the winter range, but it's muddy. You know, it's wet. You know, we've had water on it, but you know, we're just, the temperatures are warm enough that we're just not building the snowpack at that level, but we're still getting some rain and everything. So, um, that always makes me smile. Um, let's see. So, Moving into those Southern states, we talked about that a lot. I see, you know, Colorado, Eastern Utah, you know, their snowpacks are in the, you know, anywhere from 80 to a hundred, somewhere in there. They, they, they could use a little bit more, but with the, with the soil moistures that they had last year, you know, we're seeing it on the drought monitor, some of those same places, um, they're in moderate drought, you know, they're a, a wet spring. They could do great. Is, is how I look at all that stuff. So if people are trying to plan their hunts, these are, you know, these are the big, big picture things that I, that I usually look at. Um, a lot of times nowadays where you get to go hunting is determined on one, what tag you can get, but you know, back in the old days, this is all we looked at right here. You know, do I even want to go? And, uh, and I wanted to bring something up about that too, Josh, as I remember when I very first started paying attention to the Arizona strip back in, oh my gosh, literally eighties, nineties, um, I think you could almost get an OTC tag down there then, but I always paid attention to it because it grew some giant bucks. And I remember like in the mid nineties, um, we had a real strong El Nino, like 98, 97, somewhere in there. And I remember those guys down there were like, it's just terrible. Like we're just not seeing the bucks. And, and it was just weird to me. And, 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 but it was all related to just drought, just, just years of, 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 of prolonged drought, not getting, the spring rains in, you know, lo low snowpack levels. Some of those basins don't even pack, track snowpack in, but it was just like years of problems. I talked about that in Western Wyoming in the early 2000s. And so you just avoided those places then, you know, and, you know, if you knew, if, if you knew what was going on, you did. Um, and, you know, now that, you know, we're 30 years later and everything, I'm like, you know, those old boys knew what they were talking about. You know, they didn't have all this stuff that we have, but they still could could just just through simple observation you know not a lot of does having fawns skinny fawns you know and then of course the biologists and everything you know they would back that up with with data that was like yeah you know we got fawn to doe ratios and i don't know i'll just throw numbers out 40 fawns per 100 does you know a couple of years down the road you don't you don't have any recruitment coming up so you're not going to have any big bucks and those guys were spot on even back then without this big picture, you know, that we have right now. And, and that's why I've always paid attention to this stuff, Josh, because it's, it's just kind of so predictive. Yeah, it is. It's, it's predictive. And for me, I use it in the first, like when I'm trying to plan like activities in the spring, when I want to go spring bear hunting, it's like, well, what's going to be available to me? How am I going to be able to, 
what what part of the mountain am I going to be able to have access to, and where are the bears going to be living? And and you know, I I use it a little bit for planning my fall hunts. You know, obviously, if we had some major die-offs in certain areas, I'm going to look elsewhere. But um, it's to me, it's just interesting. I like data, and I like kind of nerding out on this stuff too. Of course, it's you know part of my job. I like to pr- try to predict runoff, see what our peak flows are going to be in the spring, all that good stuff work related. But, you know, I also think about it from a hunter's perspective and it's, it's useful information. So, so even spring bear, like, like how close, like spring bear is what kind of April, May type hunting. Yeah. They typically, um, you know, I know in Montana, Idaho, they start around mid April. I don't know about Idaho. I, well, anyway, I, I typically don't even start looking until October or uh, April 15th. So, um, that's when Montana opens and it's usually not very green. There's still a lot of snow mm-hmm. some years, you know, by May 1st, there's still a ton of snow in the mountains and you just can't get places. A lot of avalanche shoots are filled in it. So this will just give me an idea of where I can start looking and at what time I can start looking there. Is right now too early to tell for that? Or are you yes. looking at that? Okay. So you're more like kind of marchish snowpack is that what you're looking at yeah i mean if we're on if we're on track to have a light winter i'll start to kind of rub my hands thinking oh man i can probably start bear hunting earlier mm-hmm. um but like you said if you know a couple big storms could change all that and we could be right back to normal and if we have a really cold spring with some more snowpack building that kind of changes it as well so yeah, it, it it's sort of, I don't know, it just gives me a, a good general idea of when I can potentially get out and start finding bears. Um, so on the big snowpack years that linger into the spring, um, is it do, do the, are the bears stand down longer or is it just the fact I, I can't get around, you know, the the roads are too much snow? Like what's what's driving your decision to hunt or not to hunt? It's a little bit of both. Um, is there enough landscape available to to be growing green grass um either some of the, the areas that are easy to glass are still kind of covered up in snow and mm-hmm. or the snow just came off and nothing's really popping yet and then there are times where you just can't get to places because the you drive around the corner of a mountain road and you know you got you know a mile and a half that's all drifted in and the snow mm-hmm. hasn't melted yet and it's you know all rotten spring snow so you can't really get back to where you want to glass so it's a little bit of access and a little bit of what's like what's available to look at and what's available for the bears to be utilizing. All right. But just another tool in the toolbox to be able to study snowpack, snowtail, understand overall pre- precipitation for the year, you know, big, big things like we talked about, El Nino, La Nina, you know, the jet stream, all of that stuff just, just kind of comes together. And you know what? If even if I'm wrong on most of it, it gives me something to do in the off season. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> awesome, Josh. Awesome, man. Well, hey, dude, we're uh, we're uh, really appreciate appreciative that you came on here today. I think we covered everything on here we had on the list. Sounds good. Yeah, it was a pretty extensive list, and I'm sure people are diving into the map right now as we speak to see what's going on. Yeah, I keep that tab open usually from about right now um uh clear into the spring and um uh, i remember last spring man i was like there is more white on that drought monitor than i had seen in years like just as far as a west wide 
you know, lack of drought. There was still drought some places, but, you know, rolling it back like over even three years because you can do time lapse and really just watching just the extreme drought of California and Nevada and Western Utah just, just disappear as those storms came in. It was, it was cool, man. And, um, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, again, it's just kind of more at the hobby level, but I, I know a lot of those guys that were hunting down there this year said it still didn't come off as good as they thought, but, you know, we kind of learned a little bit this year too, that these late, late springs in these areas are, uh, delay antler growth. And we saw that around here too, that like, you know, so I was asked, Partly why I was asking about the bears, you know, they get up later, you know, when, when the snow packs later. And, and that's kind of what we saw at that cold spring is in these, these drier areas that the deer didn't really get the antler growth that we would expect for the amount of water that fell. And it was just, again, just timing this colder temperatures in, in later into the spring, just totally interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Well, cool, man. Well, hey, buddy, I appreciate you having you having you on. Um, are you going to Expo? In a, uh, what do we got? About a month here before? Uh, not even quite a month, really. Yeah, three weeks. Yes, three weeks out. Yes, I am going to be there. Um, I will be going to dinner with the Rockslide crew. Hey, looking I'll forward be, to I that. I think I'll be there all four days. I think I'm going to fly in on Thursday, and I'm fly. I fly out Sunday morning fairly early. So, all right. Are you working any booths? Um, I might help out black obus for a day i gotta set it up but um yeah i might be in the black obus booth do they put you in the sitka section yes i'm in the sitka section usually yep slinging sitka they usually have some pretty good deal so and everybody comes in and they want to know they have all sorts of gear questions so and of course i know a fair bit about sitka and can answer most questions so yeah, you and Tony Treacher are my go-to for uh, all things Sitka. You can answer just about any question from previous gear that's morphed into current lines to what's been discontinued to what's new, all that stuff. So if anybody's going to be at the expo, stop by the Black Ovis booth. That booth is always crazy, crazy, but I think it's just because I got some good deals going on. Um, say hi to Josh if you catch him there. Uh, good guy to know, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on here, Josh, and I look forward to seeing you at the expo. Yes, you too, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.